We're all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. That's a real, that's a real surface level way of trying to explain what the book of Romans is about. Um, so if you would turn to Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 12 through 18 this morning, a sermon I'm calling God's Adopted Family. Today, we're going to talk about a, a new relationship and this is a new relationship that a believer has with a holy God. And, and Paul is explaining this right here in the middle of Romans chapter 8. Because Paul's going to say there's this exchange that's taken place, if you will. Change between a lost sinner and, and a holy God when the believer places saving faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. I'm talking big, big, big changes. So that, let's just jump right into our text. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. The word of God says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not worthy comparing, comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. These verses that we just read, it speaks of this, this, this new familial relationship for those that have been justified by faith. Okay, and Quickly, I want to go back and notice the phrases in verse 14, if you still have your Bibles open. Paul said, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Be very careful with that text because that is a verse that some of the cults grab and they run with and they go real, real bad real real fast but then go down to verse 15 paul speaks of adoption he says but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out abba father then look at verse 16 he says we are children of god then verse 17 he says if children then heirs heirs of god so paul is very clearly speaking of a new family relationship in this text you see before you were saved you, you, your relationship with God was not intimate. It was not close. Our relationship was detached. It was diff distance. Because an unbeliever, those who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, they are outside the family of God. Okay? You, you could, as a believer, you could look at your life as, as BC. This was me before Christ. Okay? Because before Christ, there was you and then there was God. And you were distant. You were separated from God because of your fallen nature. Fallen human beings, those who have not placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, they have, the Bible says they're at enmity with God. Paul describes it as being children of wrath. The objects of wrath. That's how Paul describes it. So it's not just God in humans. It's God in fallen humans. 
The fallen humans that are standing in the judgment of God. Now, just, just, it's not that God doesn't love humanity. He loves all humans, saved and unsaved. God loves them all. But the big problem is because there's a separation between fallen humanity, those who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ and God, and what separates them is a three-lettered word in the English that is the word sin. Read what the prophet Isaiah said about this in Isaiah 59 verse 1. Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. So that describes the relationship between human beings and, and, and a holy God that are outside the family of God. But then something happens and things become radically different. Okay, because that was then and, and this is now. And so now the relationship isn't God and humans, but the relationship now is father and children. There's been a change. It's father and daughters of God. It's father and sons of God. There's this whole new relationship. Everything has radically changed. When you place faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, you become sons and daughters of the living God. That's how, that's how God sees the believer as, as his children. That God has brought you into his family. You know, there's, there's things people say. Well, people that would disagree with that statement says, well, we're all children of God. There's only one, one huge problem with that statement. It's not true. Okay, that's fake news. Okay, there, there's a day, if you don't believe me, well, there was a, a day when the Pharisees, they came to Jesus because they have beef with Jesus and, and they're saying all kinds of things. And, and these Pharisees, the religious elite, they said, we all have one father, God. That's what they said. Check out the response that, that Jesus replied to him. It's found in John eight forty two, The word of God says, and Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would have loved me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you, do, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are your father, the devil. So here are the spiritual elites, the who's who of Judaism. They come to Jesus. They claim God is their father. And Jesus just called them the sons of Satan. Do you remember the old WWJD thing that was popular a number of years ago? You know, what would Jesus do? Well, calling somebody the son of the devil is not completely out of the realm of possibilities. Because according to Jesus, I will say the highest source possible, not everybody is a child of God. And there's one way, and one way alone to become a child of God. And that's by receiving God's Son as your Savior, giving your life, repenting of your sins, and trusting of Him. And that is the only way. There is no plan B. That's it. If there was a plan B, why did God the Father allow God the Son to come and be tortured and died on a cross? There's no other way. Read what John said in John chapter 1, verse 12. John writes, and he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You hear that? Become. That means there's a change. That's action. Some, there was something before, and there, there's a change. He says the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but God. So again, we become children of God when we place saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that leads to this new birth. That leads to this new life. And that's because we now become into the family of God. Now, we need to recognize that all of humanity is made in God's own image. And that's something that is totally unique to human beings. That's in a create, so in a creative sense, if you will, we are children of God. But in a redemptive sense, and that is a very narrow category, that category is only those who have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word that Paul uses for it's a beautiful word. It's one of my most favorite words in the entire Bible, and it's the words adoption. Read in Romans 8, the second half of verse 15. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The word adoption, pick up some notes here. Uh, The the word adoption is a a word that Paul uses five times in the New Testament. Okay, it's a a word that that Paul would like to use to paint just so we get this idea of this new relationship that we have with, with God. It's a, it's a word that Paul wanted to use to paint that, that, that what happens when a person comes into this new relationship with God. And Paul uses the word adoption. And it's a beautiful word. It tells how somebody goes from outside the family and comes into the family. So in a sense, what Paul's saying, this is what it's like when you're outside the family to come into the family of God. Now, I think we can all agree that adoption is very different than natural birth. Being born into a family, that's one thing. But being adopted into a family, right? That's a total other thing. The word adoption is found in the Bible. It means to be placed in a family as an adult son or adult daughter. Because we were by nature children of wrath. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. But God didn't consider that a thing when he adopted us into his family. That God brought believers into his family. Now, Paul is writing the church at Rome, and I think he is referring to Roman adoption. Because when, when somebody is adopted into a family, what happens is, is they lose all their ties. They lose all their rights and privileges that came with a former family. Those are severed. But then they gain all the rights and they gain all the privileges of this new family that they're being adopted into. Even so, there, there could be natural-born children in that family, but yet the adopted son or the adopted daughter is to be considered equal. That's what, that's what biblical adoption means. They're equal, even co-heirs in an inheritance into the state that the family that they're being adopted into. If you don't know this, our family, we have three wonderful adopted children, one in the front row and two up in the balcony. And I remember very, very clearly the day that Kamari was adopted in the Burns family. Because I sat across the table from a judge and he looked me in the eye. And he said this to me. He wasn't speaking to my wife. He said, Mr. Burns. He didn't say Burns family. He said, Mr. Burns. You understand upon me rendering my verdict that this child will have all the rights and privileges as any of your other children, including your name and an inheritance. I said, that's the gospel. This man was preaching to the preacher at that moment. I'm like, yes, I understand. And with that, the gavel fell, and he said, he's your son. That's how it is when we come into the family of God. That we have all the rights, and we have all the privileges of anybody else in the family, including an inheritance. 
Then that inheritance is glory with Jesus in heaven for all eternity. And that is so amazing. I can, I can barely just come up with words to describe how awesome that truth is. But we also have a new identity. We have this new identity. We're not connected to our old family. We're connected to this new family, the family of God. In the Roman world, uh, in the Roman family, a Roman father would deliberately choose a, usually a son or, or sometimes a daughter um, to keep the name going. Sometimes they wanted to keep the name going. Sometimes they wanted to make sure that where their inheritance was going somewhere. But an adopted child was by no way inferior to a son or daughter that was, that was brought into the family by birth. It could be argued that an adopted child enjoyed the father's affections even more so than natural born children. And I think that's why Paul is using this word. It's not an accident that Paul uses the word adoption because I want you to know that God chooses you. That God picked you to be in his forever family. I heard a story of a first grade class and this, this class had this had an adoptive child in their class and the teacher was trying to explain what adoption was because she wasn't sure everybody in the, fa- in, the, in the classroom understood what adoption was and she's kind of stammering through her examples and one little girl shot up her hand and she said, teacher, teacher, I know, I know what adoption is because my mommy explained it to me. She said, my mommy told me that, that, when it, that, that adoption is when a child grows in a, in a mommy's heart rather than her tummy. I think that's a pretty theological correct stance on biblical adoption. You see, God had you growing in his heart for all eternity before you came into his family. Read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this is what I want you to know. God chose you. God picked you. God wanted you to be in his forever family for all eternity. Charles Spurgeon said about this, he said, quote, I believe in the doctrine of election. I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. I'm sure God chose me before I was born because he never would have picked me afterwards. I don't know about you, but that describes my life right there. But when we're adopted into the family, the The relationship changes immediately because Paul wants us to know we can call him Abba, Father. Abba is a a Hebrew term. It means daddy. It's a very intimate term. It's a very close term. It is a term of endearment. In March of 2018, I got to travel to Jerusalem. And I remember very vividly, I'm walking through the streets of old Jerusalem. And we think of it as like a tourist trap. What it is, but people live there. And there's people going, and there's this big courtyard. And I remember I heard a word. I don't speak Hebrew, but I heard a word. I'm like, I know that word. Heard some little child cry out, Abba, Abba. Little girl was crying for her daddy, right? That's us. That we can cry out to the Father, the God of the universe. We can cry out, Daddy. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I have to think when Jesus said that, that probably sent chills through the people that heard it that day. Because in the first century Jew, they, 
They didn't refer to God as their father. They, they didn't pray, my father. They had such a reverence and respect for God that it superseded any familial ties. In fact, they were so in awe of God that they wouldn't even say God. They wouldn't even refer to God as by his name revealed to us in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews of that day, they went to such great lengths to not even say the name of God. They, they wouldn't even write the name of God. When they wrote, if they had to write God in English, they, instead of writing G-O-D, they would write G-D. But then Jesus says, you can call God Daddy. You can call him your father. It is an intimate relationship now. Seventy times in the New Testament, Jesus is either calling God his father or allowing us to call him father because that's adoption. That's what adoption does. It takes somebody that's outside the family and brings them into the family forever. So we're given this new relationship. We enjoy this new relationship because he is the father and we are his children. Pick it up, look at what Paul said in verse 14. He said, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so when somebody gets adopted into the, the family of God, they are now indwelled by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Now, I want you to know, the Holy Spirit, he's not a force. He's not some kind of Star Wars creation. He's not a dove. Some, he, he is a person. He is a person that leads believers, because Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be with you. He said he'd be in you and he would guide you into all truths. It was a very long time ago now. I think I was about 16 years old. And I remember I was out on a, my horse. I'm riding through a field in California. And I'm, I'm riding along, jogging along. And I came across a uh, herd of sheep. And I remember I thought, I'm going to be like a cowboy. I'm going to pretend like I'm a cowboy, and I'm going to drive these sheep to where I want them to go. Let me just encourage you, if you ever get the chance to do that, don't. <laughs> because you can't drive sheep. That, that lasted like two seconds, and the sheep just laid down. I almost broke my neck. You see, a shepherd doesn't drive sheep. He leads sheep. And that's how the Spirit of God, of God leads us. And so the reason why this language is so very important because it reflects how the Holy Spirit leads the child of God. He leads, he doesn't drive, he doesn't force. The third member of the Trinity is God, but yet he doesn't bully, he leads. Some people speak of being a driven person. They'll say, I'm a driven person. You're a member of this church, I hope you're a led person. Led by the Holy Spirit, because Christians are, are, are supposed to be led by the Spirit, led, led by the Holy Spirit. Martin Lord Lloyd-Jones once said this, he said, quote, there is no violence in Christianity. Because what the Holy Spirit does is he, he enlightens, he persuades, he, he, he encourages the child of God. The Holy Spirit never drives, okay? But here's the caveat. You have to want to be led. Holy Spirit's not going to force you. He's never going to force you to do anything. You have to want to do it. You have to relinquish control of yourself. You have to say, not my will, God, but your will. What you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Too often Christians put their feet down and go, no, I don't want to do that. And it should never be. 
that way. For, for a Christian, it should be like a conductor that leads an orchestra. Because you know you got that guy up in front, he's got his little stick and he's waving it like this. What he's doing, he's keeping count, right? He's got this little stick and he's over here, he points at somebody over there and goes, little more, a little louder over here. He goes, you, little, little squires, calm down a little bit. That's what he's saying. What happens if a member of the orchestra says, you know what, I don't want to follow that conductor. I want to do my own thing. What happens? Chaos is what happens. All of a sudden you have a tuba solo where there should be no tuba solo. But in a good orchestra, you don't have anybody wanting to do their own thing. So the Christian, again, they shouldn't be asking themselves, they, they shouldn't be asking themselves, what do I want to do? What we should be doing is asking ourselves, am I allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me? Asking yourself, am I seeking God? A- am I watching what the conductor, the Holy Spirit is telling me to do? Or am I just leading myself? If you're leading yourself, that means you aren't leading. That means you're in control, right? We should be allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. But what happens is, sadly, this is often used as an out for Christians sometimes. They, they use the Spirit of God as an excuse why they do something or they don't do something. I, I've actually had Christians tell me, say, well, you know, Pastor, I feel like the Spirit is telling me to leave my spouse. No, he didn't. Don't be blaming God on your sins. Don't do that. So, or they say, you know what? I, I don't feel like the Spirit is telling me to do that. And it's clearly something the Spirit would have them do. I don't feel like the Spirit is, is telling me to go share the gospel with that person. Sometimes the Spirit of God is, is abused by Christians as, as their scapegoat. And it should never be that way. But please note in verse 14, it doesn't say many are led by the spirits or Son of God. It doesn't say that. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you don't know this, the word all in the Greek, if you did a word translation study, it really means all. That's what it means. And the word for at the beginning of verse 14, it actually links verse 14 with verse 12 and 13. So for could be thought of as because. Read verse 12 again. The word of God says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So being led by the Spirit means you're not living for you. You're not living for your bodily appetites because your sin doesn't control you any longer. That's what it means to be led. It's not mystical. It's not some feeling that you have. No, that's not what it's it's talking about. God leads you. He's given you a new motivation in life. Where we should should be saying to ourselves, you know what? I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what God wants me to do. That's what we should really be saying. That's what being led by the Spirit means. Why? Because we have a new relationship. We're in the family of God, and we have this new motivation because we're being led by the Spirit. Look what happens next. Go to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, what is Paul talking about there? Okay. Well, let's go back to Roman adoption to kind of explain what Paul is talking about there. Back when 
in Rome, when there was an adoption, there was a formal ceremony. And I remember back when our kids were adopted, there was a formal ceremony. Why is there a formal ceremony? The answer is so there's witnesses to swear that the adoption was genuine. Why is that important? Well, suppose there's a father, and he goes out and he adopts a a child, an adult child, to be in his family. And now that child is supposed to be joint heirs, but then the father dies. And then when it comes time to dole out the inheritance, the biological children go, I don't know who that guy is. He just kind of showed up when it's time to hand out the goodies, and I don't know who he is, but he's, he's not legitimate. That's when the witness steps forward and goes, I was there. I saw it happen. Your dad adopted that one. He is, he is his, the, your father's son, right? So now they are joint heirs with the biological child. In Judaism, it didn't work that way. In Judaism, the eldest son got a double proportion of inheritance. But in Roman law, with Roman adoption, it was equal amongst all the kids. Both adopted and natural born, right? That's what it's like with the Holy Spirit for us. He leads us and he's a witness. He's a witness that our adoption is real. He testifies that the adoption took place. And so the Spirit of God himself bears witness with with my spirit and your spirit that we are children of God. You see, my spirit should let me know that I am a child of God. And you you know how? What what should it say? People all the time, they may be able to ask, well, how do you know you're saved? A non-believer can say that. Well, how are you sure that you are saved? The answer is because I was there when it happened. I was there. I had a front row seat to my adoption proceedings. I saw it. And so my spirit gives a witness to that. But there's another spirit. And his testimony is way more important than mine. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit steps forward and he validates the relationship. That's what he does. Now, Paul, when he's talking about this, he's not talking about some mystical voice. Not some mystical voice that goes, oh, you're adopted. No, that's not the way it works. There's also no burning of the bosom. That's not how it works. So you're asking, well, how does the Holy Spirit prove that we are children? How does the Holy Spirit prove that we're adopted by God? And the answer is by the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the believer. Look what the Apostle Paul said about this to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. Paul said, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before. Those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we just read that list, and let's just be honest, that's a tough list. We're in mixed company here. It's difficult for me to read that. But let me just tell you, if you do a word study on some of those words, it's worse than it is in English. Okay? But that's what Paul is saying describes us before we came to know Christ. 
Because that's all past tense for the believer. That's BC before Christ. Well, if that's what we were like before Christ, what is it like now that, that we've been adopted into the family of God? We'll keep reading. This is what Paul says. Look in Galatians 5.22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Can you see these things reflecting your life? Ask yourself, do, does, does Galatians 5, 22 and 23, does that describe your life? Because that is how it's supposed to describe the believer that has crucified their flesh. They've crucified because they placed the faith in Jesus Christ. Because if we live by the Spirit, then that is how the Spirit guides us. Those characteristic traits that Paul mentions there, they are produced by the Holy Spirit living inside the believer. And they provide assurance. They are the the benchmark. They tell us you are an adopted child of God. Hopefully that makes sense. Keep reading. Pick it up in verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not worthy comparing the glory that is revealed to us. Did, did you hear what Paul said? Did you hear what he said is coming our way? That because we are, we've become children of God? He said, and if heirs, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Who are we fellow heirs with? The answer is Jesus Christ. That means everything that Jesus Christ received by divine right, we received by divine grace. We don't deserve that. We deserve the opposite of that, but yet he gives it to us. We're going to receive future glory in heaven. You know what often people are worried about? I'm worried about a new body. Let me tell you, there's days when I'm worried about a new body. And my back is going out all the time. My knees hurt. Let me tell you, there's so much more that's waiting for the believer in heaven. We're going to get a heavenly status? Can you imagine? This is something that the cults get wrong. We don't become gods when we get to heaven. That's not the way it works. We don't become gods. We also don't become magically transformed into angels. That's not the way it works. We're still people. But we're people with a new status. And we are joint heirs with Christ. Why? Because we've been adopted into the family of God. Paul said, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know what that should tell us? That should tell us we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer if we've been adopted into the family of God and we're living our lives for King Jesus. Let me just say, maybe you're going through a dark season right now. Maybe this is a very desperate time in your life. Maybe it seems to you like the whole world is crashing down and it seems like you can't even see the light. But I need you to recognize that these sufferings on this earth, one time this can be eclipsed by the glory that's waiting for us in heaven. Paul said, consider that the sufferings in this present time not worthy compared with the glory that's going to reveal to us. Let me say it very clearly, very distinctly to you here today. The sufferings of this life can't even compare to the glory that's coming 
to us in heaven someday. Let me say, I, I've told this part of my, my story, but before I came to Christ, I was the furthest thing from a Christian. I spent most every waking hour trying to figure out how I can make something more sinful. How can I do this thing but kick it up a notch and enjoy the thrill of sin even more? Before any of you point your finger at me, you all did it too, right? But then one day I got saved. Greatest day of my life, and I was changed in a moment, but now I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Romans chapter 7 was my motto because the things I want to do, that I do not do. And the things I don't want to do, that I practice. But yet I still have this desire inside me to do everything that's wrong and I don't like it. Uh, so I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible every day and I'm going to church every, as often as the doors are open. I'm serving in every ministry possible, imaginable. Then one day I remember I, I was watching TV and I've got my channel change and I'm flipping through the channels and just watching what comes on. And then all of a sudden something came up on TV. This one of those things you shouldn't be watching. And I changed the channel. Like, what? I just did it. I didn't think about it. My hand just went like that. I changed the channel rather. You know, before I would do everything I could to kind of stop and soak it in. But now I instinctively change it because I knew that's something God didn't want me to look at. And I didn't do it so that I could be saved. No, I did it because I am saved. I'm in, I'm in the family of God. And I knew that's something my Heavenly Father wouldn't want me to be looking at. And tell you the truth, I was dumbfounded. It's like, Wow. This Christianity thing really does work. But here's the way God is validating that you've been adopted into his forever family. Because the Holy Spirit comes into you, he comes into me, and he starts working in you. He starts cleaning you up from the inside out. He's the one that does it. I'm not the one that does it. He does it, and he produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the characteristics of the Holy Spirit working in me, working in you. And and he's telling you, you're in the family of God. But so what happens is that gives us assurance. It also gives others assurance. And so just so you know, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not. I'm talking about growth. Simple growth of life that's produced by the Holy Spirit living inside us. And this is producing a changed life. It's changed life due to the Holy Spirit and dwelling in the believer. And the Holy Spirit, he gives the believer assurance of salvation, proof of this new relationship, proof that you're now in the family of God. One great theologian said this. He said, quote, suffering and glory belong together. I want you to know that suffering and glory belong together. Why? Because you're in the family of God. Suffering and glory kind of categorizes and describes the life of a believer. We suffer because our Savior suffered. We, live, we will live in glory, in glory now because our Savior lives in glory. But yet we live in this fallen world. But we have to know that there's glory waiting for us beyond the horizon. Be glory with Jesus for all eternity. But for a believer, this life brings suffering. Next life, glory. Look what Paul said about this to his, in his second letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul says, For this light, momentary affliction is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
I don't want you, there's times I look at my life and go, really, God? Because it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel momentary, right? But here's your challenge today. Put that verse in context of the person who said it. How many in this room have been beat up for your faith in Jesus Christ? I see no hands. Okay? How many times have you been thrown into jail for your faith? Again, I see no hands. How many times have you been shipwrecked because you went on a mission trip to tell people about Jesus? Well, I got stuck in a hotel in Casper, so did you, right? I remember that. It was kind of plush accommodations compared to what Paul was going through. How many times has somebody thrown rocks at your head until they thought you were dead because you wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus? Well, that's what happened to the man that wrote that letter. And he's the one that says, all of that is worthless compared to what's coming to us in glory with King Jesus. How do we keep going? How do we keep going in a world that's just trying to take us down at every turn? How do we, how do we keep telling people about Jesus, living the Christian life? And here's a way. Stay focused on the compensation to come. I'm not talking about health. I'm not talking about wealth. I'm not talking about prosperity in this life. Some people get it. Most don't. I'm talking about the coming glory that's waiting for us in heaven. That's what should keep us going. That's what should drive us forward. Knowing that we'll be with Jesus forever and ever for all eternity. No more tears. No more pain. No more of the bad. Only good. And it's only because what a Savior did for us on the cross. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about how all of creation is groaning. Well, hopefully, you know, as, as part of creation, we groan too, right? I don't know about you, but every single day I roll out of bed just a little bit slower than I did the day before. Or back when I was a kid, I could like lay down in the craziest positions and just wake up and feel great. But now I sleep just a little bit long, wrong, and I, I'm a wreck the next day. It's like, really? You hurt yourself sleeping? Yep, that's exactly what I did. I hurt myself sleeping. But I've noticed the older I get, the more I groan. Get out of that chair and, oh, right? When I was little, I wonder if my grandparents did that. Why do you groan when you get out of the chair? I get it now. So Romans chapter 8 should comfort anybody that knows what I'm talking about. We're groaning for glory. Peter wrote his epistle, and he said, hey, you should expect suffering. We shouldn't be surprised He said, you should expect suffering when you're suffering for the right reasons. If you aligned yourself with Jesus, expect suffering. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice insofar as you share suffering. Why are we surprised when we suffer? What happens is we think, I can't believe God's allowing this to happen to me. I thought it was good. Why is this bad thing happening? But should we expect better treatment than what Jesus got? If you are an adopted son, if you are an adopted daughter, and you align yourself with King Jesus and live yourself for Jesus, and you're being led by the Spirit, and you're doing what the Spirit tells you to do, guess what? You're going to suffer. And we should receive that, that suffering as an honor. Often we think, well, I'm suffering. Well, maybe I'm not doing this right. I need to change my tactics. I need to do something else. Let me tell you, that suffering might be an indicator you're doing everything right. 
We think I'm suffering, I'm doing it wrong. No. Maybe you're doing everything right. Maybe the suffering you're experiencing is an indicator you're doing everything imaginable right. And therefore you're suffering because of it. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm a chuba. I don't like that word. I don't like that word. But let me tell you, anybody can endure suffering. It's only the Christian that can endure suffering knowing that there's purpose behind suffering. All these trials are because God adopted you. Meaning he chose you. You've been picked by the creator God of the universe. I remember back when I was real little, I'm in like grade school, first grade, second grade. Every recess, we'd run out and we'd play kickball. And we, we would all line up on the fence and two people would get chosen. They're the captains and they start picking. I want so-and-so and so-and-so. You ever been last pick? Anybody? I was. It hurts. Like, gosh, that hurts. I don't like being picked last. But you know what? The God of the universe chose you first. First pick out of the gate. I want you. I want you. You're on my team. So if you are a son or daughter of God, you were adopted. Adopted, picked, first round by the, by the creator God of the universe. And, and now you have future glory waiting for you in heaven. So many Christians go through suffering in this life and they fail to realize, you know what, I'm only experiencing this because God wants the very, very best for me. What we do is we think with a worldly mind and we think, well, maybe God doesn't want the best for me. No, don't do that. God's allowing you to go through what he's allowing you to go through because it is the best for you. Do you want to know what the number one indicator why, or, or excuse me, number one reason why that people, at least in America, don't become followers of Jesus? Let me tell you, it's not from lack of knowledge. It's not from a lack of Bible exposure. So many people have tons and tons of head knowledge, but this is what they think. They think, well, if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, well, then Jesus is going to mess up this good thing I got going on. All I can say to that, I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've got. What you've got and who you are is nothing compared to the coming glory that's waiting for you with you in Christ if you give your life to him. Very famous actor, Jim Carrey. I think most of you know who that is. He once said, quote, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that's not the answer. It's not the answer. This section of the book of Romans, Paul tells us we're debtors. You know what that means? That means we're in debt. Paul's saying we, if you're saved, if you've been adopted into the family of God, you're in debt to live your life for Jesus. Not live your life for yourself. But you're a believer that's been justified by the grace of God through faith. Now you're indebted to live your life by the leading of the Spirit of God. If a believer lives their life like the rest of humanity, I'll say selfishly, they forfeit the blessings that are coming their way. We were once orphans. We had a spiritual no good, no account, abusive father called Satan. And yet God steps in. He adopts us out of that family and into a loving, amazing, perfect family. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit and dwells us with the third member of the Trinity 
It's con- and then it continues to remind us and says, hey, you don't belong to that family anymore. You're in this family. And with this family comes suffering. It's because a believer is no longer outside the family of God. They've been adopted into the family. And since Christ suffered on the cross, believers are going to suffer. So here's my closing question. I'm going to conclude on this question. Have you been adopted in the family of God? Have you been brought into his forever family through faith in Jesus Christ? Because God went to the greatest lengths to bring you into his family. Jesus left heaven, robed himself in humanity, and came to this fallen, broken world and lived a sinless life, knowing the cross before him all the time. And he got a glimpse of the, of the cross in the garden at Gethsemane to where he sweat blood. And he still said, I'm going. I see her. I see him, and I'm going to the cross so they can come into my family. And God the Father allowed sinful men to treat his one and only son like sinners so he could treat sons and daughters like his children. If you've never placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, I beg you to do that now. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. There must come a moment in time where you recognize your sinfulness, you repent of your sins, you turn to Christ, and you cry out to him. For most, it's a prayer. It's this, where you say, dear God, I am a sinner, but yet you love me so much you died in my place. I give you my life. Save me my sins, and I pray this in Jesus' holy, perfect, precious name. Amen.